The Secrets of Movies and TV Shows is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Hi, I'm Thomas Salerno, and you're listening to The Secrets of the Adventures of Tintin, where we'll be discussing this 2011 animated adventure film directed by Steven Spielberg and based on the classic comic book series. And joining me today on the panel are Victor Lambs. Hi, Victor. Hello. And Jack Berzini. Hello, Jack. How's it going? Great. So be sure to follow the podcast, guys, on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, or your podcast app or directory of choice. And please do us a favor by sharing the podcast with your friends. We've got a lot more great movies and shows that we're going to discuss on the podcast in the near future. So stay tuned for all that. And you can follow the show on social media. We are on Facebook at Facebook.com slash StarQuest Media. And we're on Twitter at SQPN. And on Instagram, where we are at StarQuest Network. So I'm excited to talk to you guys about this movie because I did not see it when it first came out in theaters. And I only discovered it, you know, later, I, I think on Amazon on streaming for something. Well, by the way, apparently the movie is now at the time of this recording towards the end of June is available for free if you have Amazon Prime. If it's still available when this podcast comes out, definitely check out this movie. It's really fun. And uh, I will now actually attempt to summarize this film. There's a lot <laughs> going on, but I've, I've written what I hope is an entertaining summary. So a young journalist named Tintin and his terrier dog Snowy discover a model ship and catch the interest of a mysterious and sinister collector named Saccharin. While Tintin goes to the library to research the original ill-fated vessel, a man-of-war called the Unicorn, that sank under mysterious circumstances, the model is stolen from his apartment. Tintin then heads to Marlin Spike Hall, where he confronts Saccharin about the theft, but discovers that there are in fact two identical unicorn models. Tintin then returns to his flat to find it ransacked again and discovers a mysterious scroll that had been hidden in the missing model. Tintin then enlists the help of the hapless detectives Thompson and Thompson, who are on the trail of a serial pickpocket. The slippery thief then coincidentally nabs Tintin's wallet and the scroll. Tintin is then abducted by Saccharin's men and imprisoned aboard the SS Caraboujon, bound for the Moroccan port of Bagar. Tintin manages to free himself and allies with another captive, Captain Archibald Haddock, a chronic drunkard who is descended from Sir Francis Haddock, captain of the Unicorn. Hijinks ensue, and Tintin and Haddock barely manage to escape the ship and then improbably hijack the seaplane that was sent to finish them off. They crash in the Moroccan desert, but are rescued by the French Foreign Legion, and Haddock conveniently remembers that Sir Francis had hid the scrolls inside the unicorn models as clues to a king's ransom in gold from the doomed ship, which had been destroyed by the notorious pirate Red Rackham, who was, again coincidentally, the ancestor of Saccharin. The duo, with Snowy in tow, by the way, Snowy the dog has been on all these crazy adventures so far, the team make it to Bagar, where the Sultan possesses the third identical unicorn model. 
Meanwhile, Thompson and Thompson have recovered Tintin's wallet from the pickpocket and return it to him along with the coded scroll. Saccharin then causes the movie audience to suspend disbelief by using an opera singer's voice to shatter bulletproof glass that was protecting the Sultan's ship model. He then absconds with the scroll and a slapstick Indiana Jones style action chase ensues involving a motorcycle, a bazooka, and a hydroelectric dam. In the end, Saccharin retrieves all three scrolls from Tintin by threatening to drown Haddock and Snowy. Tintin feels like giving up, but is persuaded by Haddock to go on, and with the detectives Thompson, they lay a trap to arrest Saccharin, but he escapes and fights Haddock in a bonkers pseudo-mech battle using dockyard cargo cranes. Saccharin is finally defeated by Haddock and is taken into custody, while the scrolls lead Haddock and Tintin back to Marlinspike Hall, the old Haddock estate, where a statue of St. John the Evangelist leads them to part of the hidden treasure, along with a clue to where the rest of the gold can be found on the ocean bottom. The end. Whew! <laughs> okay. <laughs> there is a lot going on in this movie. Before recording, we said that they, this is actually condensing three stories from the Tintin comic books. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's... uh. Secret of the Unicorn, Red Rackham's Treasure, and then it takes a lot from uh, the crap with Golden Claws. Yeah, all of which I I probably read when I was five or six years old. They had the the full collection of Tintin comics in my elementary school library. And so I remember just going down there one right after the other, just checking them out and reading them, which, you know, for a five or six year old, given, you know, Captain Haddock's drunken behavior and some (laughs) of the humor, you know, may have been a little (laughs) over the head of a five year old at that time. But right. I think they, you know, based on my recollection of the comic books, I haven't read them recently, but they retained uh, a great deal of, you know, that we can talk about that in, in the movie itself, uh, a great deal of the, the character and the, the characters of the books. Mm-hmm. So are, are you guys both familiar with the comics? Because I was not really. I may have seen them once or twice at the library as a kid, but I really didn't gravitate toward them. So I, I just wasn't familiar with Tintin before I saw this movie. I grew up reading them. And so when the movie came out, I was super excited for that because I've always been a fan of them. Nice. Yeah, I I could never get into superhero comics. I, I yeah. always tried as a kid, but I just there was just so much and it just wasn't really my thing. But I, I loved these as a kid. So it was exciting to see this movie come out that you could tell it was really a labor of love because they they hew so closely to the feel of the old comics. Yeah, and this movie did have a very long development history with Hergé, uh, you know, who is actually, um, you know, Georges uh, Prosper Remy, who took on the pen name of, of Hergé because in French, G and, and R are, you know, Hergé, if you say them backwards. It's, it's this convoluted history even of his, oh, uh, of his pen that's name. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. Georges George Remy is, is, you know, R R G, you know, Hergé is his pen name. So. Yeah, so he's you know started off as a newspaper cartoonist, started writing these Temple Tintin cartoons, and his style evolved. His art got progressively, you know, more more advanced. But the, um, and at some point, either I think Steven Spielberg reached out to him. No, Hergé reached out to Steven Spielberg after seeing Raiders of the Lost Ark and said, you know, if if, if that explains makes a, a it, movie, yeah, <laughs> yeah. If anybody makes a movie of my stuff, I want it to be you. 
And so, you know, they, they kicked it around for a while. Nothing ever came of it. They, you know, Spielberg lost the rights. He, Hergé died. Hergé's widow, I think, reached out to Spielberg. You can correct me if I'm wrong. You know, and, and they started the, the talk again, I think, originally as an animated movie. Then uh, they started filming it as a, as a live action. And at this point, Peter Jackson uh, with his widow effects, how you know, it said like, well, how about if we do this all as motion capture, you know, animation rather than live action? And they, you know, did a, a 12, uh, 20 minute demo. They filmed, uh, you know, the actors did a 20 minute scene and Peter Jackson, I think, took it back, animated it. And Spielberg was very impressed with it. And that's kind of how they uh, agreed on the look. And it did, did take even from the time they started writing the movie, like seven years to get it to the screen, I think. Wow. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, yeah definitely has that Raiders feel, you know, like yeah. I, I often call it when I describe it to people who haven't seen it. I'm like. It's basically it is an Indiana Jones movie that if you like Indiana Jones, you yeah. are going to love this movie. Yeah, it's got all those elements. It's got that that action feel that at least the first or the original Indiana Jones movies kind of retained and this, the John Williams score. So, yes, it is. Yeah. I always yes. tell people this is the actual fourth Indiana Jones movie. <laughs> yeah, John Williams. Yeah. Yeah. John Williams ran out of classical composers to rip off. So he ripped off his own score from Raiders for this one. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> sorry, I don't have the same opinion of Jonathan Williams that a lot of people do. But now, I mean, the, the score for this, I mean, the, the title sequence is very nice, but um, the, the rest of it just title kind of, sequence. When do we yeah. ever get those anymore? That was great. I liked that. It was. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, the rest of the score feels a little phoned in, um, like someone imitating a Jonathan Williams score. But yes, it's it looks fantastic. The movie does. It, it's not quite as creepy as Polar Express or Beowulf does. I think they've they've managed to kind of cross over the uncanny valley to the other side. And the fact that it is based on a comic, you know, and, and that they can take some liberties with it, I think, helps a lot. It does feel very filmed, though. There's not a lot of the kind of animation style book in it. There's a couple like wacky animated moments, like where I think Captain Haddock goes around a propeller a couple of times. Oh, yeah. But aside from that. But aside from that, I mean, this this was filmed live action and then, you know, mocapped and, and it's very mm. clear that it could have worked just as well as a live action film. And I think the fact that they did all the character modeling like they looked in the comic books, they didn't try to make it photorealistic with yeah. the models. I think that's what really helps it, because, yeah, with with like Beowulf or Polar Express or some other movies, I'm thinking now of a. Uh, the infamous Scorpion King from the Mummy movie. <laughs> <Yes>. uh, <laughs> you get that. You get that uncanny valley look, but or Mars needs moms. I think. Oh but yeah. yeah, but yeah, Monster House, which is another one that came before this, was well, I really enjoyed that, and that does have a very cartoony look to it, um, mm -hmm. which is why I think it works. Yeah, I remember before I saw the movie, I had seen complaints that like, oh, it's creepy, it's the uncanny valley, and then when I watched it, I didn't get that at all. Like, I agree with you guys that it, it, it looks stupendous and you can definitely tell that what Peter Jackson learned from the Lord of the Rings and King Kong with motion capture. He, he really brought all those lessons and like just perfected it in an A game in this movie. It's just stunning that it's that it's motion capture. And I, I, I forget that when I'm watching the movie. But then when I think about it later, I'm like, oh, it makes total sense. Hmm. Yeah, I watched this with our, our eight year old and a 10 year old, and they were amazed at like how realistic it looked for a cartoon. They were like, how did they do that? Like they were amazed by the look of this, you know, and this is they 
seen everything. They've seen the new Mario movie. They've seen, you know, the high points of CG animation and stuff. But something about the look of this just resonated with them. And it, even if you watch it today and the film is, you know, 12 years old, the technology is probably 15 or 20 years old. It still looks very fresh and new if, if you haven't seen it before. I think it looks better than a lot of more recent uses yeah. of CGI. Like, yeah, especially the environments. Like, it's basically photorealistic for a lot of it. The water looks amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think this came out right at the height of the most recent 3D craze. Mm. You know, when when every movie that came out in 2010, 2011, 2012 had to be in 3D and you would go to your, you know, you get the, the polarized glasses and watch it in the theater in 3D. They don't do a lot of like pointing directly at the camera and stuff like like you could tell when a movie was came out during that craze <laughs> yeah. because yeah. there's a lot of like, you know, weird gratuitous stuff like that. And I, I think this was one that was featured in 3D, but doesn't you can you know, it's not gratuitous 3D. Yeah, I didn't see it in 3D when I saw it in the theaters, but I try yeah. to avoid those whenever possible. I feel like the 3D, though, would work better with an animated film like this. I remember some of the, the movies that I saw during that period that were 3D. You could tell that the 3D was really an afterthought and it just it just didn't look very good. And I just I don't know. I just feel like with at least with some animated movies that it sort of blends better with the 3D. Did, yeah. Is there a 3D Blu-ray of this or not? That's a good question. I can yeah. I can be looking that up while we yeah. chat. And that comes back to a lot of live action films at the time were filmed just with one camera. And then kind of there was a 3D conversion that they did. Yeah. Which, you know, brought out certain elements versus things actually being filmed stereoscopically with two you know cameras. Uh, Martin Scorsese's uh, Hugo is, I think, one that was filmed stereoscopically with 3D in mind. And as such, it's if, if you ever want to see kind of the height of 3D cinema, that that I think is is probably the best live action 3d movie that really you know embraces the medium yeah and i think that's another thing that really grounds it is that even though it is motion captured because they filmed it live action it feels like a live action movie yes yeah i think that definitely adds yeah. to it but, but one where they can go over the top with their action set pieces and there are a number of action set pieces i mean if you like big spielberg oh wow yeah, yeah. action set pieces and and think that he's I mean, you compare this to something like um, Ready Player One that came out just like maybe three or four years ago. And the CG in this looks a lot more realistic, even though it's a cartoon than the <laughs> realistic CG in, in that Spielberg movie. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, you, you have a, a bit epic pirate battle, like you mentioned, midway through the through the story and the masts of the pirate ships are get intertwined and one pirate ship is swinging like a pendulum over the other yeah. one as as they're like, you know, having an epic, you know pistol and sword fight and then at the end you mentioned the the crane fight and that is uh reenacting the the sword duel between yes, the two captains yeah, yeah. In, in the in the in the pirate so it's there's a lot of that symmetry in the movie spielberg loves his match cuts you know if you watch like the paramount logo in every you know indiana jones movie at paramount logo mountain fades to either a mountain or a picture of a mountain he does or a lot Groundhog of hill yeah yeah <laughs> oh no yeah he does a lot of that he does a lot of that in this one, too. There's at least three or four of those uh, in, in this movie where a scene will change and it's it does that kind of match cut thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. What struck it me is about that one where. Uh... Oh, go ahead. No. Which which scene were you talking about? Because I, I was going to mention the one with the wall with the puddle. Yeah, that's that's what I was going to mention. Yeah. yeah. Where it goes from like they're they're floating at sea in a boat 
and then it pans out and it's like there's like a puddle on the ground on the sidewalk mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. And the guy steps on the boat yeah there's a lot of cool scenes like that what struck me about this movie when i first saw it were like a the visuals are astounding and just b that it grabs you from the very beginning and doesn't let go to the very end mm-hmm. there's not a dull moment in this movie i'm either you know, fully invested in the action or I'm laughing at something. This is, but in a, in the best way possible, this is a very funny, a very funny action movie. And and the action scenes too, they're, they're pre-staged. Like Spielberg is a master of kind of like setting up the sandbox. Like when you get that, that action sequence in Bagar, like you see the dam, you see the tank sitting in the Mm -hmm. background and all those elements like the dam breaking the tank, they all play into that particular action set piece. And all the, just very good about lining the elements up and, I think this is a great Spielberg film. Not all of his oh, films yeah. are, are great, but this one is, yeah. This has like a lot of those quintessential like Hallmark style of Spielberg that I feel like even movies before this that he's made, like in the earlier 2000s and a lot of his recent stuff doesn't really have anymore. But this felt like classic Spielberg. Yeah, it does. Yeah, it it definitely had that feel because, you know, I I grew up a fan of his, you know, as a kid and still today, my favorite movie is Jurassic Park, you know, and, and Jaws and Raiders of the Lost Ark were huge for me. It's like, but then this felt, yeah, this felt just like classic Spielberg. I could see him in it from like beginning to end. And that, 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 that chase scene with the dam and the tank and the bazooka, that's probably my favorite sequence in the movie. It's just so well yeah. choreographed and done. And it, it, it's such a, a very just visually exciting chase scene. And that's another thing. This whole film is visually interesting. There's all kinds of little vignettes happening in the background. If you like, look. Oh, like, yeah. Remember the, the, the part where I think it's where Thompson and Thompson finally get a hold of the pickpocket. The pickpocket. Meanwhile, yeah. in, in the background, there's this this little old lady being helped for up from the ground from being fallen but like she she feels that the guy helping her up is kind of taking advantage so she she starts whacking him and there's just there's just completely miss that yeah i i i only (laughs) saw that this time while i was watching to record for this i'm like what's that going on in the background i'm like there's like a whole other scene going on (laughs) in the background of this of this scene of thompson and thompson talking to the pickpocket it's just such a visually interesting movie. Well, like, I'm sure if you stopped at any random scene, there'd be something interesting going on. Yeah, it's it's a very, very visually rich movie. And I love the way they open it, where you have the artist who, the guy who's drawing him is modeled after Hair J. Yeah. And that's just a great way to do an introduction, is to have his self-portrait be the comic style. I love yeah. that. Yeah, and as they open in Brussels there, which... You know, as as a Belgian American, I, I vigorously object to the to the Anglo washing of uh, Belgium in this, with all oh, the yeah. us being all Brit, being all British people and an area Belgian in sight. But I thought it was taking place guess, in England until I looked it up on the Wikipedia page, and it's like in Brussels, yeah. and I'm like, oh, okay, I thought this was England. <laughs> That's why you get uh, Roman soldiers with British accents, right? I mean. Right. Yeah, but but we should probably also this being uh, the you know, SQPN, we should also talk about the writers for, for this, although there are three writers credited, but they did not all work on it at the same time. Uh, the first of which is uh, Stephen Moffat. Everybody will recognize as the showrunner of, of Doctor Who, 
writer during the 10th Doctor's season and then showrunner during the the 11th and and 12th, I believe. And he hadn't yet taken over as showrunner on Doctor Who when he was writing this. But you could definitely sense some of the Stephen Moffat, you know, cleverness and the dialogue and some of the plot twists and stuff are what he would work into his Doctor Who plots. But then he he actually had he was called away from the project to, to work on Doctor Who. And they brought in Edgar Wright, you know, who's done you know, every kind of movie. He worked on, on it for a while. Then he was had had to go do something else. And then uh, finally, Joe uh, Cornish was brought in um, from Attack the Block to kind of finish it up. So it's not like the three of them were all sitting around in a room, like bouncing ideas off of each other, which I think would have been really cool because that's kind of like your writing dream team. But right. it is fun that we have uh, Edgar Wright. You can definitely see a lot of the Edgar Wright inf- influence in some of the his his very signature style of writing and humor. And then we have Nick Frost and Simon Pegg who are in a lot of his yeah. movies too, as Thompson and Thompson. They were yeah. great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Every scene yeah, they're the Tom- in, I was laughing hysterically. <laughs> yeah. The, the Thompson twins, which is where that eighties band, you know, got their, got their name, hold me now. And uh, they actually took their name from the Thompson Thompson in the Tintin comics. Oh, nice. Although they're actually not related. They're not twins. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say that they're, they're not supposed to be related. Right. But what one has yeah. a P in the name. Yep. I think. Right. Yes. Yeah. The, the, the scene where they're talking to the pickpocket who is, um, oh my gosh, who, who plays that? That's Toby Jones is the pickpocket. No, Toby Jones. Yeah. I didn't recognize him like until I read it on the Wikipedia page, but that everyone, all the actors in this do such a great job. I think, but that that scene where yeah, it's got a lot of big names. Yeah, yeah this is a star-studded cast. Daniel Craig is the villain, and uh, mm-hmm. I'm of, of course Andy Serkis, who had you know made yeah. his name in in the Lord of the Rings movies, is is Captain Haddock, and it's it's funny he the 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 voice he's doing for Captain Haddock is not dissimilar from some of the voices he does no. in in uh, the Lord of the Rings audiobooks. So it, it was oh, actually nice. kind of th- this time around rewatching it. I, when I close my eyes, sometimes I'm like, I'm like, is this a Lord of the Rings audiobook or is this <laughs> the adventures? Of I, Tintin? I kept I kept expecting him to chant one way out, one way out, like he does in Andor and stuff. <laughs> right. But no, I mean, obviously, probably the most accomplished uh, motion capture actor, Andy Serkis. And it's sometimes, I mean, Jamie Bell, uh, very good as Tintin, but Tintin has a more photorealistic, you know, case. Obviously, he's the lead hero, hero character. He needs to be somewhat less caricatured. But then Captain Haddock looks more like and then there's other characters that look even more caricatured. So it kind of sometimes it felt kind of like like Andy Serkis wearing like a Mardi Gras paper mache head of <laughs> Captain Haddock. It yeah. doesn't really get that bad, but but it wasn't, you know, <laughs> what somebody is standing next to Tintin. Yeah, I don't know if that's really the voice. I would have picked for like Captain Haddock in my mind as a, as a five-year-old, but it works. Mm. You know, I think it works. It works very well. I was going to say that when I first saw it, that was actually the hardest thing for me to take in what being a fan of the comics was. Cause I'd never pictured Captain Haddock with a, like a Scottish bro. No. So huh. but it was, it, it works for the movie. So, and, and they like, they keep his alco- alcoholism intact too. And there's a lot in this yeah. movie that like, you wouldn't expect to see in a kid's movie like Tintin's very yeah. handy with his like firearm and stuff. Yes. And yeah. Actually doesn't straight up shoot people, but shoots down a plane and mm. and other things. And then, you know, they, they make a big thing out of, you know, Captain Haddock drinking. And it's when he sobers up finally that he starts to remember, you know, what his grandfather told him that, you know, right before he tipped into a 20 year drunk or whatever it was. And 
you know, it's not completely played for laughs either, which is which is good. Right. But it was a big part of the comics was, yeah, you know, like he would take a drink of water and he'd be like, what is this? It's like, well, that's water, Captain Haddock. He's like, what are you trying to poison me? You know, that's. Yeah, you know, I was going to ask about that because I I felt when I was rewatching the movie again that I'm like, there are probably some people who could get really upset by the fact that maybe they think the movie is making alcoholism funny or something, but I, I, I felt that it largely worked in the movie. You know, I didn't. So yeah, it is as someone who is had alcohol issues and it was interesting watching this movie after all that, mm. but I like that they, what they do in the, they do in this movie, they don't really do in the comics, which is his alcoholism is pretty much just played for laughs and is part of his character in the comics. They actually make it have negative impacts on the story. Right. And he kind of, you see him like moving towards working through his addictions in the movie. So I appreciated that they have that angle that they did not have in the comics. He says at one point that he drinks because he knows he'll never be like his famous ancestor, Francis Haddock. Yeah. So I thought, okay, at least they're giving it, they're exploring some of the psychology of this and showing that, you know, that this isn't really, you know, like you said, it's causing negative impacts on his life. And it, it almost strains his friendship with Tintin at one point. Yeah. At a, at a critical point in the movie. Cause, uh, right. Because at one point he's trying to stay on the wagon and he gets hit over the head with a bottle of alcohol and Tintin smells it on him and assumes that he's been drinking right. again. Yeah. So that causes strain. But I do like also that they don't either completely remove that yeah. from the story or make it like super heavy handed and moralizing right. like it's not portrayed positively but it's also not hit you over the head with oh he's gonna be clean and sober now for forever like th they handled it in a mm -hmm. good way yeah and, and it, it does have you know comedic and plot points that you know one of the first scenes he belches on Tintin's face and you know the fumes <laughs> almost knock Tintin out which I think is lifted from the comics and then there's another thing when they're they're in a plane and the plane's running out of gas it's a you know single motor uh you know propeller plane and there's a uh, one bottle of medicinal alcohol on board and uh, Captain Haddock decides he wants to drink that. But Tintin puts the plane, you know, unrelated to doesn't have any idea what's going on behind him, puts the plane into a nosedive. They go zero G for a while. And then there's this scene where, you know, the alcohol turns into a weightless bubble and Captain Haddock and Snowy are fighting over who gets to drink it out of the air like the astronauts do. You know, and, and eventually it's all gone, but they're out of gas. And Captain Haddock you know, heroically decides to climb out onto the you know, where the engine is and belch into, into the motor and, his, and the fumes, uh, the alcohol fumes from his breath are enough to reignite the engine and have it run on fumes uh, long enough to to make land. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. Yeah. There's a lot of like crazy slapstick action in this movie, mm -hmm. which, again, just makes it like just really, really fun. It like it does. It almost it does things that an Indiana Jones movie as a traditional live action movie just couldn't do. Yeah. And, and so it's all building. We, you know, we get the flashback with the epic pirate battle. We get the that was where like my nerd hat, my nerd hat went on. And I was like, there's no way a pirate sloop would attack a 50 gun man of war. But that's just like my nerd hat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Great yeah. scene. Well, you're the most daring uh, pirate. Yeah. And then, um, yeah. So the main bad guy's name is, is Saccharin. And then, you know, we meet the opera singer who, who he's been courting in order to, to bring her to Bagar so that she can sing the high note and shatter the bulletproof glass around the, <laughs> the, the third model ship that he needs to, to complete the map. And, um, 
the opera singer, uh, you know, says, you know, my patron, Monsieur Sugar Additive. Oh, you know, yeah. His name is Saccharin. <laughs> and, and there's just, you know, other jokes like that that are just that are just thrown in. Yeah, it, it, it's it's fun. She says, like, he has been very passionately involved in this concert. And I was like, OK, <laughs> what have they been doing in yeah. the background? <laughs> <laughs> and you can see him kind of cringe yeah. when she says yeah. that. <laughs> but I like that this movie works as like it's tame enough that it's kids can watch it, but it's not made as a kids film. Like it's just a fun, yeah. a fun movie. And I feel like a lot of times nowadays you'll get movies that are either they have to be a kids movie or they have to be an adult movie. So it's nice to have a movie that works both ways. Yeah, it's not perfect. There are two big problems I have with it. The first mm-hmm. is there's no professor calculus. He's my favorite character from the comic books. Oh, yeah. who is he? He's like an absent-minded professor guy with a mustache and a and a hat and wears like green, I think, all the time. And I just remember he was like my favorite yeah. character because he's just, you know, a genius, but completely absent-minded. And, you know, and uh, he's not in the movie. I don't think he was in these three books, but. I don't think he's in The Grab with Golden Claws, I think. But I know that plan for the sequel, which has been stuck in development hell for like since this movie came out, um, they were going to do Prisoners of the Sun and the Seven oh, cool. Crystal Balls. Those are like my two favorite ones. So I'd love to see that adapted. But he features heavily in that. So they were planning on bringing him in. Yeah. And, and that hints at the other my other big problem with it. It's it's we get to the ending of the, the movie and he finds the globe. His grandfather's globe hits the, you know, the island that's not supposed to be there. It pops open. He gets his, you know, great, great grandfather, Captain, you know, the original Captain Haddock's hat. And there's gems in it. And. You know, at that point, you're expecting like, are we going to see the shipwreck? We got to see the shipwreck, right? He picks up the gems and he's like, now the real adventure begins or something. <laughs> Credits. You know, and you're yeah. like, no, what are you doing? And I know they had planned on doing a sequel, but it, because no sequel ever, ever really came. The movie feels kind of un, unfinished. I mean, there's there's sequel hooks. And then this feels a little bit off from just a sequel hook to me. It's like, oh, you found like a handful of gems, right? Well, what about the ship we saw go down, you know, you know, with all that treasure on it? When, when are we going to see that? You know? I thought that maybe since it, I'm like, well, it's adapting a comic book. So maybe they're trying to do that where like you where you reach the end of an issue or yeah. the end of a, a book and it doesn't completely wrap up everything and, and tie up all the bows. And I'm like, maybe they were trying to have that feel or maybe it was just they definitely thought they were going to get a sequel and trouble happened. I think that they were trying to set this up so that if you'd never read the comic books, you could be introduced to the characters and see Tintin and Captain Haddock meet and have that relationship form and get everything introduced before they made more movies. Because mm-hmm. in the book, I, I think in these two, it's been a while since I've read them. Captain Haddock and Tintin already know each other. And I think that's just kind of established throughout the series. But yeah, you get them going down to the shipwreck in the book and they have like a submarine that's shaped like a shark and all sorts of crazy yeah. stuff um that would have been fun to see oh wow yeah. are, are these books available like are they easy oh, to get a hold yeah. of oh okay I then, then so, i need yeah. to read these because they sound awesome <laughs> I, w- I would they say awesome. buy your copies now okay. before <laughs> before uh they, they you know they they get uh revised and edited out of uh oh like the dr seuss so, thing yeah, that's to them yeah they are they're really good they're definitely of their time mm-hmm. and 
I think that some people would consider them to be offensive. And I think it's it's perfectly fine to point out issues with them because they're of their time. But they're still really good books. And I, I hope that they don't go out of print. Yeah. And I just like these kind of adventure stories. I always I always have since I was mm. a kid, you know, not just Indiana Jones, but, you know, stuff like Arthur Conan Doyle's The Lost World or, you know, just just any kind of like, you know, King Solomon's Minds, you know, those kind of adventure stories. And this movie kind of pushed all those buttons in my head. And so even though I wasn't familiar with Tintin or the comics at all, I was just like, this is just a really entertaining action adventure comedy. And I wish they had I wish they had done more. And hopefully those those plans for a sequel work out because I would definitely like to see it. Yeah. And if you think like the backgrounds and stuff in this movie are lush, that is directly taken from the comics as well. I mean, you would get incredibly detailed in, in not in so much in his newspaper stuff on which they're based, but he went back and readapted his newspaper comics for the books and they, the backgrounds. There's a there's huge like multi page where it's one panel with things going on in mm. every part of the panel. It's just. That's interesting because in a lot of those comic books, they would kind of skimp on the backgrounds. So it's it's interesting to hear that in his comics, he went full out with that. I think that's part of why I liked them so much, because a lot of times if you're reading like a serialized, like a lot of like the Marvel or DC comics, like the art is really cool, but they're working under pretty specific time constraints. And so a lot of it is just focused on the characters. You don't really get a lot of detail in the background mm-hmm. where with these like there are a lot of panels in there that are basically just intricate paintings and it's just beautiful artwork yeah he was heavily influenced i, I heard by uh when uh windsor mckay's little nemo comic which was which was in newspapers i think around the 19 early 1900s like 1905 and i mean it's hard to believe that that is a newspaper comic just given that it is incredibly detailed it looks any page of that could be like a, a lithograph that you would hang on your wall pretty much Oh, yeah. And so he was you know, very influenced by that. And yeah, I mean, there was a time when when to be a, a comic artist, you had to be really good at art and, and painting all of it and composition and drawing his his line work. Well, you know, the characters can be rendered simply like his expressiveness. You know, Charles Schultz was another uh, artist who who with just a simple pen line could, you know, you know, Charlie Brown's mouth or Linus's mouth, just one line. But it evo- evokes so much emotion, just, you know, it, it, the expressions and stuff. So it, it's, it's it's definitely an art form. Yeah, it's it's awesome. Yeah, I wanted to point out probably my favorite line in the whole movie before I forget. And it is that it's at that moment when Tintin's ready to give up. And, you know, the the Mm -hmm. saccharin has all the scrolls. It's after the huge chase scene. And he's talking about how they failed. He's a failure. And Haddock kind of gets in his face and says, look, there are plenty of others willing to call you a failure, a fool, a loser. Don't ever say it to yourself. And then he says, you can never let failure defeat you. And I thought that. That was really good. And that kind of hit me yeah. when, when I when I first saw this movie a few years back, I had, I was in a place where I kind of needed to hear that. So that I, I mm-hmm. thought that that was one of the most effective lines in the movie, because it's true. Like you should never say that about yourself. Negative self-talk is such a huge, you know, and self-sabotage like that is is such a huge thing that so many people struggle with. And you can tell in 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 Haddock's life, he struggled with it, too. And he's had to learn the hard way. You know, don't there's plenty of other people willing to knock you down. Don't do it to yourself. 
Yeah. Yeah, that that is a very powerful, you know, I was kind of looking over our boys like to see like, like mentally note this. This is you know something that's going to serve you well in life. Right. And, you know, in a modern day Marvel movie, like they would lose the scrolls and like Tintin would look over Haddock and be like, well, that just happened. You know, or there'd be some quip or something. You wouldn't get you wouldn't yeah. get that that actual honest character moment. You'd, you'd get a quip or something. Or well, they'd from undermine it. Or yeah. 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 Like, people will always call you a failure and then someone walk up and I'm like, what up, loser or something? Yeah. You know, they would <laughs> try to make it funny somehow. I do like, though, that the movie doesn't ever like preach at you or is moralizing about any of that. Like mm-hmm. it, it works organically for all the characters. Yeah. And, and, and again, like. A man is machine gunned down on Tintin's doorstep, and he he grabs his pistol. Right? I mean, like you wouldn't see that, you know, in a in a in a kids movie these days. I, no, although this is these days, you know, was made in these right. days. But it's yeah, it's very true to the comics, and and very true to like you know what a uh, uh, you know boy reporter in the 1950s who's sticking his nose where it doesn't belong would would run into. When the FBI mm-hmm. guy is gunned down on his door, there's that little moment where like you know someone's been gun down on our front step and the landlady's like again <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah i like those little moments that hint at kind of the larger world that like this is that crazy things kind of happen to tintin all the time and like you you get hints of these stories that haven't been told i like that because like that, that you know that the world has gone on both before the movie starts and after the movie ends that it that mm-hmm. it's part of a larger world. You're just seeing a few days in these characters' lives. I've always liked movies that can accomplish that world building. It does a lot of good showing, not telling yeah. too, which is nice. And I liked how at the end, our our final clue is a a religious figure from Christianity. It's Saint John the Evangelist, because uh, the 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 Eagles' yeah. Cross was uh, the final clue on the scroll, and of course, John the Evangelist often being depicted in art as an eagle and he's holding the, the the statue of him that they encounter is holding a cross above a globe which contains the uh pirate's hat full of gold i thought that was interesting mm-hmm. yeah and and it was haddock's finally his his memory coming back where he walks into the basement and says this basement used to be bigger when i played here as a child this this was a bigger room you know mm-hmm. something's been uh you know boarded up here yeah and we get the butler i, I don't know his his name, but the Bart- butler of Marlin Spike Hall, you know, who when Saccharin is in charge has to knock Tintin out, but then gives Tintin advice. And then he's there at the yeah. end too. So he's just kind of like, you know, he's, he, he's part of the building, right? He serves yeah. uh, whoever's in the building, but, but definitely the Haddocks. Uh, he has first. a funny line when they're about to arrest Saccharin and he's, he's telling Saccharin something like, you know, I trust you had a successful voyage, sir. And he's like, do I pay you to talk to me? And he goes, you don't pay me at all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Pretty funny. Again, an, another just great background character. He doesn't have a whole lot of lines, but when, when he does, he's either saying something interesting or he's saying something funny when he does have a line. There's, yeah, there's just so much, many cool little moments and little characters. I thought even the, the henchmen, even though I don't remember any of their names, were were general like I recognized them when they would show up. They weren't just yeah faceless henchmen. They all kind of had distinctive looks to them. Yeah, and that's something that was pulled straight from the comics because he would he was very good about it, even for minor characters giving them a unique, realistic look where you could identify them. And those guys are all pulled from the comics. Yeah, and uh, 
Carrie Elwes um, wanted to be in the movie so much. And at that point, they had it pretty much all cast. They're like, well, there's this, you know, guy in a plane we can give you the part of. And, you know, I think you have like two or three lines and, and he agreed to do it just to be in the movie. You know, oh, wow. That's really the impact <laughs> that Tintin had on, on people, you know, of, of that generation. Yeah, apparently he ran into Steven Spielberg in the cereal aisle at a grocery store okay. and begged him to be in the movie. Wow. <laughs> like, well, I, can, uh, yeah, I can give you a, a, a small role in my movie. Uh, what's that cereal you have there? Just the tricks. That was a bit of a stretch to <laughs> as you wish. But anyways, that's uh, <laughs> like kind of like how people will will jump at the chance to be in Star Wars, even if it's just a tiny, tiny role. Yeah. You know, or a background alien or something, which, yeah, I would do in a heartbeat if I could be like a droid or a background alien in Star Wars. I would do it. You know, it's like so I guess. Yeah. Or the governor and governess of a planet. And uh, oh, (laughs) yeah. Well, Star Wars. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they had a much like larger role in that episode. But I guess that's right. Yeah. But before this becomes all about Star Wars, you guys. uh, Jack and I haven't brought up Star Trek once. Oh, man. I know. That's yeah. right. Oh my gosh! Is there some way we could shoehorn it in? I don't. <laughs> yeah, that's our running joke on Secret of Stargate. Is like, yes. what's the over under on like how long it takes us to to bring up Star Trek? I can't think of a Star Trek hook to. No, lots to of Doctor Who hooks, but but no, I can't. No, yeah. Other than that, you know, there yeah. was a lot of naval stuff in this movie. Which yeah, I'm sure could have been turned into some sort of Star Trek reference at some point, but probably. But do you guys have any? Uh, Final thoughts on the adventures of Tintin. This is a it's a great movie. It's it was even more fun watching it after having not watched it for probably since it came mm-hmm. out. And I really, really hope that they get the sequel made. It's tentatively scheduled for 2027. Oh. But, you know, we'll see what happens. Oh, wow. And definitely check out the book. Check out the comic books because they're fantastic. Yeah, I'll echo that, too. It's, it's a great movie. I think I've seen it three times now, once every six years or so. And that seems about right. Or repeated viewings but if if you have kids and adventure some boys or girls in your life who are you know maybe eight and up really recommend it it's it's a good family movie night yeah it's it's a lot of fun and and definitely check out the comic books yeah and i'll definitely say this this was probably my third or fourth viewing and yeah it it's just a great movie never a dull moment if you're a fan of indiana jones or classic adventure and you're looking for something like that this movie will will do that for you so before we go, though, we'd like to take a brief moment to thank our patrons who make this podcast possible, including Scott P., Mel P., Catherine L., Dennis S., and Ryan. Their generous donations at sqpn.com give help us to continue to create the secrets of movies and TV shows and all the shows here at StarQuest. And you can join them at sqpn.com give. And we'd like to hear from you guys. Have you seen The Adventures of Tintin? Have you read the comic books? You can let us know by sending us an email at secrets at sqpn.com or by commenting on our Facebook page or on YouTube or Twitter. And you can visit the StarQuest Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord. And once again, Jack Barazzini, thank you for joining me in sharing the secrets of Tintin. Thanks, Thomas. And Victor Lambs, thank you as well. Thanks, Thomas. It was a lot of fun. And once again, I'm Thomas Salerno, and thank you for listening to The Secrets of Movies and TV Shows on StarQuest. Yay! Yay!
here's another show on the StarQuest Network you're sure to enjoy. The Secrets of Star Trek. Find it wherever fine podcasts are found or at sqpn.com slash Star Trek. 